Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in Zechariah chapter 5, and uh, we're going to go ahead and just read it together. Um, I'm going to just read through the chap- two chapters, and, we'll, and then we'll go back and look through it. So beginning with Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the house, uh, in the midst of the house of his house and consume it with its timber and stones." Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze." With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from the station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See these, see those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, from Tobiah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helem, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So what we've been going through in the book of Zechariah 
so far has been eight visions that Zechariah uh, seemed to re- re- uh, receive all in one night. And uh, up until now, the first five visions were meant to encourage and inspire the people to action, rebuilding the temple. The Lord was with them. That was, that was one of the messages. The Lord's with them. The Lord's removing their sin. The temple will be built. There's a coming Messiah, the branch. Uh, he's going to restore Israel, and he's going to reign from Israel. But now we get these last three visions, and these last three, three visions have to do with judgment. So God's encouraging the, the, the exiles to rebuild the temple. Hey, rebuild the temple. There's a plan. There's a purpose. Um, and then he introduces them about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who's going to restore Israel. We know from history it's going to be in a future date. But these last three visions all have to do with judgment. And judgment precedes restoration. You know, for you and I, we've been, you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been restored into a right relationship with the Lord, but judgment had to occur first. Uh, for you and I, fortunately, as New Testament believers, that judgment was meted out on Jesus Christ, right? He bore our sins for us. He took the judgment of, from our sins on him, and he paid the price. And so we, we've been given that restoration, but there still was judgment that came before that. But for us, Thank God it it was through Jesus Christ who took it for us. So let's take a look at these visions, these last three visions. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then I turned and raised my eyes, and there saw a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. So this would be probably about 30 by 15 feet long. This is, a, this is a huge scroll. It's large. You can't miss it. Verse 3, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones." So you get this picture, this huge scroll that's flying around. And, and on one side of this scroll, there's a curse against every thief. On the other side, there's a curse against every perjurer, every, every liar. And uh, the scroll is large. It contains God's curse against these sins. You can't miss it. And it goes out over the face of the whole earth. No one is excluded from this. This scroll is representative of all man's sin. It's, you know, God's not just concerned with just lying and stealing, but it's representative of all sin, uh, sin against fellow man. You know, we steal from one another. Um, sin against God, those who swear falsely by God's name, the false prophets and things like that. Um, and it says this curse, the curse of this judgment enters the home of the liar and the thief, and it will consume the home. And it was that's kind of an interesting thing because... If you go back into Leviticus chapter 14, don't, don't turn there, but if you go back to Leviticus chapter 14, it deals with leprosy in the home. You know, there's leprosy on people, but in, in the Old Testament times, there was also leprosy in the home. And so they had a, they had a, uh, there's a whole chapter devoted to it. What do you do when there's leprosy in your home? Well, the first thing you do, if, if it's found in the stones of the home, is you shut the house up and you leave it for seven days. And then you come back and you re-inspect it. 
And if the, if the leprosy is still in the stones, then you're to remove the stones, you're to remove the plaster, you're to scrape the walls, and then, and then if leprosy breaks out after that, at that point you just tear down the house. And you're supposed to carry the stones and the plaster outside of the city to an unclean place. And there's a biblical principle in there, and it's as to deal with sin in the home. If sin is not dealt with in the home, you know, a lot of times we come to church and we, you know, we have this persona or we, we put on this, this appearance that everything's fine, but maybe there's some sin going on in our house. Or, you know, maybe there's a broken relationship or, or maybe there's some hidden sins or something that's going on in the home. If it's not dealt with in the home, eventually that home is going to be consumed and torn down in judgment. In Proverbs 3, 33 says, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. So we need to deal with those things. Well, what is the judgment the curse brings? Well, in this vision, it's being expelled or removed. You see, all these things are pointing to the restoration of millennial Jerusalem. These, these last visions. And before the restoration of millennial Jerusalem, first there's a purging and a removing of sin and sinners. And you can read that in the book of Revelation, Revelation twenty two fourteen says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. In millennial Jerusalem, they'll be out of there. They won't be in the city. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, he's going through this whole list of those that are, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, some of you were like that. Some of you were these people. But you see, for you and I as believers, that should be past tense. You used to be that. You know, we have to deal with sin in our lives. If, if, if it's not past tense in our lives tonight or today, man, we need to get right with God right now. We need to deal with those things. Well, let's go on to the next vision, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what is this that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. That Hebrew word basket is the word ephah. And ephah was used as a dry measure for volume. It contained maybe five to ten gallons of contents. And in this case, this ephah was larger than the standard measurement because it was large enough to hold this woman in this vision inside this basket. And, and Zechariah is, is told that this, this, this woman, she personifies wickedness. She, she represents wickedness. 
And so we have this, this dry measure of volume with this wickedness in it. And then we have this lead cover or a lead disc that's put over it. And the, in the King James, James Version, it says a talent of lead. And the talent was used to measure weight. So you have the description of something that's used to measure volume and something that's used to measure weight. And so you have weights and measures. And what this really is symbolizing is commerce and God's judgment against wickedness and commerce. Well, what is that talking about? Well, in the end of verse 6, notice he says, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. That word actually means an eye or a spring or a fountain. You know, it's where something starts. Um, the other last week, Dave and, and uh, um, Stan and I, <laughs> sorry, Stan, <laughs> I get that way sometimes. It's, it's not you, believe me. Uh, we went on a ride. We went on a motorcycle ride, and, and Dave took us down to this place called Big Spring, and, and there's, you know, there's this rock, the side of this hill, and out comes water. That's, that's the source of this, this creek that starts flowing over there by, by fountain. And uh, that's really what this is talking about. It, it's this eye, this spring, this fountain. It's, it's like a source. And the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root or the source of all evil. You know, in a figurative sense, the eye was seen as the avenue of temptation. And if you think about it, money wealth, materialism, etc., that has been an avenue for temptation for so many people, whether they're saved or unsaved. The temptation for wealth or the temptation of wealth, it's caused many people to compromise their values. People have cheated. People have stolen. People have murdered. People have betrayed all for the temptation of wealth. This commerce, you know, um, most of you know what's going on with the Target stores, right? This is the latest thing that we've, we're dealing with or heard about is this bathroom policy in Target stores. You know, if you're, if you go, if you're a man and you one day go into Target and you, you go, I, I, I feel like a woman today. I'm identifying as a woman, so now I can go into the woman's restroom. And uh, so Target's like, hey, you can do that all. And well, a lot of people are, are uh, protesting that or they're, they're boycotting Target stores. That bathroom policy, you know, it's not that they care necessarily about those individuals that feel that way. It, honestly, it's not really that they care about that. It's the money that they, that they can generate. It's the love of money. It's because there's an untapped source of market there. They want to appeal to those types of people that would accept that because that brings in more money to the store. And if you don't believe that, I used to work for a company, and they blatantly said that they, were, you know, they always were getting contracts with other people, and they said, we are purposely going to search out contracts with homosexually owned businesses. We're going to search them out. They get a priority over heterosexually owned businesses in all of our contracts. This was a large corporation. So this, is our, this is our purpose. And then they said, why? And it wasn't because, well, we care about those people. They've been mistreated for so many years. No, they said, because that's an untapped market. There's so much wealth there. We're going after that wealth. You see, it's a love of money. It's the source of that. Before Israel's independence... At the end of the Holocaust, you know, the, the Holocaust was over. World War II was ended. The United States, you know, they, they, the, the soldiers, they went in and they released these captives from these prisoner camps. And they were just, I mean, they were appalled at what they saw. And so at that point, there was the worldwide sympathy towards the Jewish people. 
And so they were going, a lot of them were going back to Palestine because where, where could they go? I mean, they, they'd been driven from their homes in Europe and all over. So, so many of them were going back to uh, Palestine. And uh, Great Britain at the time controlled uh, Palestine. And they had this policy towards, you know, here's you got these refugees coming from Europe and all, all over coming to Palestine. They would turn them away. They would, they would not let them settle back in Palestine. Why? Because they were worried that the Arab nations were going to get offended by it. They, they didn't want to upset the Gulf oil states because of the oil, because of the money. It, it was, it's all comes back to money. It all comes back to money. I, you know, I think a lot of the policies that um, our uh, government's been doing recently, some of them are very ungodly policies. I think all of them are driven by the love of money. Because that's what the Bible says, the, root, the love of money is a root of all evil. You know, even believers can get their eye focused on wealth and materialism. Jesus talked about that in his parable of the seed and the sower, right? In Matthew 13, 22, there was the seed that fell among the thorns. And he said, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So even believers can get caught up in this. Well, continuing on here in this vision, verse 9, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its place, on its base, excuse me. Shinar. That's the land where Nimrod built the city of Babel. Way back in the book of Genesis, you can read about Nimrod. He was the first type of Antichrist. The first type of Antichrist. Um, He introduced basically the worship of man. He gathered all these people together and he said, hey, let's build a tower whose top reaches into the heavens. And he he said, we'll have all one language. We'll we'll all be one people and look what we can do. That's the worship of mankind. The worship of man. Of course, God came down and 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 you know scattered everybody, and that's where you get the word babble because nobody could understand each other after a while um, when he confused their languages. But that Shinar, the land of Shinar, is also where the city of Babylon was built, that ancient city which was the center of the false mystery religion. Now think about this for a moment. Zechariah is receiving this vision. This is after the Babylonian captivity. This was after Babylon was conquered by the Persians. So Babylon is no longer this, this, this force to be reckoned with. Now, now the Medo-Persian Empire is, uh, is in control. Um, and yet in this vision, this basket containing wickedness personified is carried off to the land of Shinar. And it says when it's ready, the basket will be set there in the land of Shinar on its base. We see prior to the restoration of millennial Israel, Babylon is once more going to figure prominently in world history. You can look at, read about it in the, in the book of Revelation. Possibly, it's going to possibly become the headquarters for that one world government led by the Antichrist. See, all things come around. They started that, and it's going to end there. Um, the one world religion will probably be based out of there by the false prophet there in, this, in Babylon there. It's going to be the commerce hub for the world. 
and, and you can read about in Revelation 17 through 18, it describes God's final judgment of both commercial and spiritual Babylon. So this is what this is dealing with or talking about. Let's go on to chapter 6. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. When you're reading in the Bible, whenever you see bronze or brass in the Bible, it's usually associated with judgment. And so you have these four chariots coming from between two mountains of bronze. So, so there's a sense of judgment. And the first chariot, it's driven by red horses. Now, if you go into the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, there's a red horse that's sent out, and it's sent out, and it's, it's associated with war. Uh, the second chariot here in this vision is driven by black horses. And if you go to Revelation chapter 6, the, the red horse, or excuse me, the black horse that's sent out uh, in Revelation chapter 6, it, it's dealing with famine, associated with famine. And then the third chariot um, is driven by white horses. And in Revelation 6, there's white horse that it, it's symbolizing with conquering and, and taking over places and political intrigue and things like that. And then the fourth chariot is uh, driven by dappled horses, whatever dappled is, but um, I'm, I'm guessing spotted or kind of mixed. In Revelation 6, they don't say it's a dappled horse, but they call it a pale horse, and it's associated with death. So again, you know, whether or not these chariots with horses correlate with the four horses of Revelation 6, it's basically conjecture. But in any event, the scene that seems to be pictured here is one of judgment. And the mission and the purpose of these chariots seems to be the same as those in Revelation 6. So there's, there's this judgment, sense of judgment. Verse 4, Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, and the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Very difficult prophecy to to interpret but we're told here that these four spirits that these are the four spirits of heaven in other words they're angels that are standing before the lord day and night ready to serve at his command we know, we know that there's angels that are just attending the lord in heaven and they just the minute he says something they're they're on it you know they're, they're going to go do whatever they're sent out to do they're ministering spirits and here in this vision they're sent out to walk to and fro throughout the earth going out to check out things, going out to make sure that God's judgments are being done. The black and the white horses seem to be focused on the north country. Uh, What's the significance of that? The only thing I can think of is that Babylon and Magog are to the north of Israel. And if you look in the book of Revelation, Babylon and Magog figure prominently in last day's prophecy. So it could be referring to that. But we're told that they go throughout the whole earth. So really this seems to be a picture of God's judgment against all the nations prior to the restoration of millennial Israel. 
So that's the eight visions. We did five before, we did three just now. And all of these eight visions were meant to encourage the exiles, including Zerubbabel and Joshua. They were to encourage, hey, God's in control, there's a plan and a purpose. In the end, God wins. I mean, there's all these things that are presented or, or, or portrayed in, these, in these, uh, these visions. And what's interesting is most commentators think that Zechariah received all eight visions in one night. Can you imagine how tired you'd be in the morning? One night, nothing but visions. Vision after vision after vision. Um, and so, presumably, he wakes up, and then the Lord speaks to him in verse 9. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So, so now this isn't a vision. This is the Lord speaking to Zechariah. And Zechariah is to take silver and gold from these three exiles who have returned from Babylon. And they're mentioned by name. And they're to make an elaborate crown. And what that means is it's, it's one that a king would wear. It's a, it's a fancy crown, basically. And they're to set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest, and this is Joshua, not the Joshua from the book of Joshua, but this is the guy that his name is Joshua, and he happens to be the high priest at the time of these prophecies. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest was never to assume the role of a king, and the king was never to assume the role of a priest. Um, there have been a couple kings that attempted that. King Uzziah and King Saul both attempted to take on the role of priest, and it ended up being disastrous for him. King Uzziah, he attempted to take on the role of of priest and he became a leper and was banished to the day of his death. King Saul, uh, he attempted to take on the role of a priest and the Lord rejected him from being king over Israel, made David king over Israel in his stead. It was disastrous for him. So if you think about this, Zechariah is receiving this, this command, hey, take the crown, this crown that a king wears and put it on Joshua the priest. And Zechariah, probably his wheels are probably turning like, well, what about Uzziah? What about Saul? And, and so it must have seemed very unusual to Zechariah. The natural thing would be, hey, why not put it on Zerubbabel? I mean, he's the governor. He's the polit- political guy. Well, let's put it on him, right, and, and make him the king and stuff. But Joshua, the priest, is the one to be given the crown of a king. And the reason why is because This Joshua typifies another Joshua. The name Joshua, the Lord delivers, that's the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name Jesus. Jesus' name in Hebrew was Joshua. So this Joshua, this high priest, he's a picture of Jesus, our high priest. So they're told to place the elaborate crown on Joshua, who's a picture or a type of Jesus Christ. You know, at the end of the Great Tribulation, prior to the millennial restoration of Israel, in Revelation 19.12, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He has a name written that no one knew except himself. This picture of Jesus, the conqueror, coming, he's got all these crowns on his head. Well, verse 12 of Zechariah 6 says, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. 
From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Very, very interesting, the words that are chosen here. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, when we were in chapter 3 of Zechariah, the branch is a name for the Messiah. It's, it's another name. It's a title of Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the branch. Uh, you can read about that in chapter 3. But here he says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. So you have this picture here of this, this, this priest who's wearing a king's crown, and they're supposed to say, Behold the man who is the branch. In John chapter 19, after the soldiers mocked and beat Jesus, Pilate takes Jesus. He's got this crown of thorns on his head. He's got blood streaming down his face. And he presents Jesus to the crowd, and he says, Behold the man. At that time, of course, he was the humble, suffering Savior, right? The Lamb of God. You know, he was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. But this time... After the great tribulation, he's not presented as the Lamb of God, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so there's this beautiful picture here of this conquering Messiah, of Jesus Christ, presented to the world. He says, Behold the man, and he's got his crowns, uh, many crowns on his head. It says, From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now this is not speaking of Joshua the priest and the temple that Zerubbabel is building. This is looking forward to the one that Messiah will build. Now, that's probably referring to the millennial temple. And when we were in Ezekiel, I don't know if you remember, if you were here when we went through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 45 describes in great minute detail a temple that's going to be in existence during the millennium. And uh, this is probably referring to that millennial temple, but it also could be referring to the temple of God's people. Because you and I today, you know, we're the temple of God. Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it could be referring to both. This, this physical millennial temple and you and I, the temple of God. It says, He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne, so he shall be a priest on his throne. So he'll not only rule as a king on his throne, but he's also going to reign, uh, rule as a priest on the throne. Again, the king and the priest, both in the same office there, really a lot like Melchizedek. Remember him? In Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, so he's a king, and priest of the Most High God, both king and priest, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." That, that Melchizedek, that, that, that interesting character in the book of Genesis, 
That is a picture of Jesus Christ. He's both a priest and a king. He has no beginning, no genealogy or anything, and it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. It says, And the council of peace shall be between them both. Well, that's an interesting phrase. The result of the priest's work of atonement and the king's reign shall be peace. Well, peace between who? It says between, peace between them both. And so the question is, who are the them? Well, I think the answer is peace between a holy God and a sinful man. Because that's what Jesus Christ, the priest and the king, is going to do. Many people are searching for peace in life. They're finding, trying to find peace in all kinds of things. You won't find peace apart from a living relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just impossible. That's the only way where you and I can find peace. Verse 14, it says, Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord, for Helim, Tobiah, Jedediah, and, Jediah, excuse me, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar off shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So now we get these names now. Helim, it's the same name as Heldai in verse 9. Hen, the son of Zephaniah, is probably just another name for that of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Um, in other words, this, that Hen and Josiah is probably the same person, just called different names. Um, I had a pastor friend; his name was Chick, but his, his, you know the, everybody calls him Chick, but his name is Matthew. You know, and so they're two different names. You get called by different. Maybe you know, I get called you know stupid. No, I'm just kidding. You know, but my name's Don. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, you get the idea. This, a person can be called different things, and that's what it looks like. This is talking about. So, in other words, these same are these are the same guys from verse nine. They were to donate the silver and gold for that elaborate crown. Then they're to put the crown, uh, the crown is to be put on the head of Joshua, and then it's to be removed. You see, because Joshua wasn't to be a king of Israel at that point. He was just pointing to the king of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But this was to be removed and placed in the temple as a reminder to them and the rest of the exiles. A reminder of what? A, remember, a reminder that the Lord was with them, that the temple they were working on would be rebuilt, that the Messiah would one day come, judge sin, and restore Israel. In verse 9, it says that other na- even other nations would participate in building. Now, that's kind of a, I'm reading the New King James. It's a little bit of an unfortunate translation because in the King James Version, it says that other nations would participate in building in the temple. See, the Messiah is the one who builds the temple. The other nations build in the temple. What is that referring to? It's probably referring to the Gentile believers, you and I, who would one day also be part of the temple of the Lord. We'd be building in the temple. How do we build in the temple of God's people? Well, it's very simple. You and I, as the temple, as, as, as members of the temple, as living stones, we're to be building up, we're to be edifying, we're to be encouraging and coming along other side. Other side. That, that's what we're to do. That's what church is. We come alongside and build one another up. We, we encourage one another. We edify one another. That's God's will for his people. And so I think that's what this is pointing to. Well, all of these things were to encourage and build up God's people as they were reminded of future glory. It's good to remind one another of God's plans and God's purpose. We individually, you know, things happen in our lives. We can lose focus. 
We, things happen in our lives that are just overwhelming. And, and, and God gives you and I an opportunity to go into someone's life and say, hey, remember this. Remember that God's in control. Remember that, you know, you, you haven't lost your salvation. You know, I've been, I've talked with people that have been just so despondent and say, hey, you know, yeah, things are kind of bad right now in your life, but man, you still have eternal life guaranteed because you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And so we can do that to one another, building and reminding one another. For the Jews in Zechariah's day, that millennial reign of Jesus Christ and Messiah, man, it was far off in the future. For you and I, think about this, it could literally be seven years from now. The, the, the millennium could literally be seven years from today if, we, you know, if the rapture happened today. Well, it could happen today, right? So really... If for us, you know, they were encouraged from something that was going to be, it turned out to be thousands of years later, you and I, man, it could only be seven days from now. Think how, think how close we are to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It could be just around the corner. So how much more should you and I be diligently obeying the word of the Lord, in diligently encouraging one another, building up one another? That elaborate crown was a reminder for the exiles and you and I, we have a reminder this morning, and that's communion that we're going to be partaking in this morning. It's a reminder of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Because, you know, again, we can get our eyes caught up on, on commerce, on, on, on wealth and possessions and stuff. We can have sin that maybe we haven't dealt with, that, that we needed. We can lose all these focuses, and the Lord wants us to refocus ourselves on him and his plan and his purpose for our lives. And so we have an opportunity to do that by remembering and participating in communion this morning. Why don't we go, Lord, in prayer? And Luke and whoever else is leading worship, you want to come up? Why don't you guys stand up first, and then we'll sit back down. I don't know. You know, going through, this is my first time studying through Zechariah and uh these prophecies have been pretty interesting. These visions have been pretty interesting. Uh, it's amazing how many different interpretations uh, there are based on these. And, uh, you know, when I was looking at these, I'm basically trying to use Scripture to interpret Scripture because I think that's the, that's the safest way to, to look at these is uh, let Scripture be its own commentary on, on things. But for an encouragement, if you've struggled through those visions, I just want to encourage you, uh, it gets better as we get further on into Zechariah. So I uh, hope you come back for more. It's a, kind of a teaser for more. But let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, this morning, Lord God, for the fact that, Lord, um, you're, the, the sin that we committed, Lord, was judged in you. And that, Lord God, you took our sin upon yourself when you died on the cross for us. Lord God, that now through your blood shed for us, Lord, that we, we now have peace with God, with a holy God. Lord, I, I'm a sinner. I've, I blow it all the time, and yet I can have peace with a holy God simply because of what you did on the cross for us. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your sacrifice. This morning, Lord God, I pray that we as believers would just be excited about the fact that you are returning and that, Lord, it is so soon. It could be, it could be today. Lord, and so, Father, I just pray that, Lord, we would just realign our focus, Lord, that our focus would be on your business, your purposes. Lord, that we would be like those angels that are standing in your presence, Lord, just waiting, 
waiting for you to say something and then we jump, Lord. There's no delayed obedience. There's no uh, arguing or, or questioning. It's just, Lord, when you tell us to do something, we just do it. Lord, I pray that we would be like, like, like those angels, Lord, in these visions. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning and I, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I pray that, uh, Father, that they might just grow closer in their relationship with you this coming week. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.